0: I have found out your great wound. You are dying from this flower on your side. You cannot find the center where we dance, where we play, where life is still asleep, under the closed flower, under the smooth shell of eggs in the cupped nest that mock the faded blue of your remoter heaven. Now as I read that, my experience is that it sends me away from myself, which I think is what great literature does. It sends me out, outwards into the wider universe. O Rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night, in the howling storm, has found out thy bed of crimson joy. Will you save me? whispers the young man, sobbing. Will you save me? A reading life, a writing life. With writer and teacher Sally Bailey. Produced by Andrew Smith. So I've evacuated my island, my island has flooded. There's been too much rain, which isn't to say that my boat's flooded because the boat just rises up on the mooring if the ropes are sufficiently slack. What it means is the river bank has broken. Makes it more difficult to get on and off the boat only because the boardwalk is more slippery. I might have taken a stumble, I might have stumbled as I just did there in my sentence. I might have taken a fall on my wobbly pins with the water skimming the surface of the meadow. So I've taken refuge in my friend's house in West Oxford. I'm in fact on another island, Osney Island, a very ancient part of Oxford behind the railway station. Osney, O-S-N-E-Y. I'm in a house with doors. I haven't been in a house with doors for a while. My friend has a lovely, long garden. It winds a bit like a snake down to the bottom where the river is. And I'm wearing her Ugg boots to keep Miss snug. It is a very cold morning, I'm just passing the plum tree which I've picked many a time before. I bend my head under her plum tree. The ground is covered in frost. And my goodness, there's the river. And it is coursing its way so rapidly, so very rapidly. And there are two trees that have been pushed into the river by the force of the water, by the looks of it. The sound of the river forcing its way over the steps on this little wooden jetty I stand on, or rather I'm kneeling on, as though I'm saying my prayers to the river, the river gods. There's a little green canvas covering the boat next to the the jetty where I'm kneeling, and the river is causing that little boat to fret, a fretful little boat banging against the jetty That river is flowing fast and hard. The sound of the river passing over the wooden steps, steepling the steps as it passes under the fir tree. The fir tree's leaves and branches are dipping down into the river. I see their little fingers touching the cold water. And the river passes underneath those green fingers And the greenery all around has been disturbed. There's many a hanging branch, parts of broken trees. Wounded trees, I suppose, you might say. They're wounded. Trees should not be so low bent into the water. So I've come back to my boat after a little break because of the flooding. The heartbeat or the pulse of my boat is coming into a state of calm after a rather turbulent time with the flooding. We spend a lot of time as a community here discussing whether or not the river will burst its banks whether our meadow would become a reservoir for water. My neighbour tells me there was a baby deer, a fawn, swimming or trying to swim downstream and was caught by the current. Somehow, miraculously, he managed to pull out the fawn and rescue it. Took it on board and wrapped it up in blankets, held it like a small child. They called him Deedee and Dee spent the night and the next day Didi was released back into the wild, bounced across the meadow like a happy Bambi to be reunited with his dear, dear to hear the sound of the water coursing by my window it's as though my center of gravity suddenly sits lower I can release a catch internally hearing that sound so steady and consistent It smooths the brow of my conscious mind smooths out the creases as I listen to that flow, it's the beginning of a state of deeper relaxation. I switch off my phone, which was making an agitating sound just now. A hissing, an agitated, rather angry snake. So I put it away. Drown out the snake and listen to the sound of the river murmuring quietly to itself. My island seemed to be a sort of cloud dump. All the hemispheres leftover clouds arrived and hung above the craters. Their parched throats were hot to touch. Their parched throats were hot to touch. Was that why it rained so much? And why sometimes the whole place hissed Turtles lumbered by, high-domed hissing like tea kettles, hissing like tea kettles, hissing like tea kettles. And I'd have given years, or taken a few, for any sort of kettle, of course. For any sort of kettle, of course. That, my friend, is Elizabeth Bishop. And that's her poem. Crusoe in England and for some reason that poem has been jumping in and out of my mind in and out in and out. It's strange how poetry comes to you at times it's exactly the right sort of poem to describe my flood I just want to have a little moment for this microphone in my hand It's a strange thing how this microphone has become a part of my anatomy, almost another limb, and it was wiggling and waggling around just a moment ago because I hadn't tightened its stirrup. Um, I wanted to talk to it as though it were an animate thing, because in fact it was animate at that point in time. And when it's animated, it starts to make its own noises. Like this. Or like this. We call that a bang. Andrew and I, the producer, we say there was a bit of a bang, a bit of a bang, a bit of a bang. Sounds like a military march, like someone's got hobnailed boots on. Why shouldn't the microphone have its own voice? Tap, 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 tap goes the microphone cord drawing attention to itself why shouldn't it? Imagine a world in which everything had consciousness, in which everything spoke. The teacups, the wooden spoons, the kettle, the fruit bowl, the book, the book I'm about to take into the bath with me. The pages are nice and stiff, they've been on my boat for a little while, getting nice and crisp. And it has its own life force. Speaking back. island seemed to be a sort of cloud dump. All the hemisphere's leftover clouds arrived and hung above the craters. Their parched throats were hot to touch. Their parched throats were hot to touch. Was that why it rained so much? And why sometimes the whole place hissed. The turtles lumbered by. The turtles lumbered by, high domed, hissing like tea kettles, hissing like tea kettles, hissing like tea kettles, hissing, hissing. Oh, there's a little visitor passing by. That's Foxy. Hello, Foxy. She's sniffing around along the boardwalk. She's a tabby cat. Yes, she looks very determined. Little tiger in the jungle. Off she goes. Pad, 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 pad. Now, my job of the morning is to Continued reading Will Self's Selected Writings, 2001 to 2021, entitled Why Read? And I keep being distracted by his footnotes, which are sending me off down these labyrinthine reading pathways. That's just, I'm just getting on my chaise long. so sorry for the creaks. And so I've been reading over and over this essay called Kafka's Wound in Will's book, and he's got these alluring footnotes. I do like footnotes and he says here i am guilty of an association of ideas and in casting about for the source of my guilt i find i cannot prevent myself from linking one idea with another purely on the basis of their contiguity in time in place in my own mind it's not only ideas i connect like this i do it with images sensory impressions and the most epiphenomenal of mental glitches. Which is precisely how I experience my own mind. It wanders between image and image, sensory impression and sensory impression. I seem to jump and hop like a restless frog from one lily pad to another, one book place to another. Emily Dickinson put it this way, I am a nobody Who are you? I'm a frog in a bog. I think of reading as being a bit like being in a bog. Partly submerged, somewhere sometimes a bit murky and mysterious. Nothing is always quite clear, but I prefer it that way. What I love are these electric associations, these electric pathways you suddenly get from life back into the art of the book itself. And I do believe in a kind of reading serendipity that if you're really reading truthfully, reading in relation to your own life and the way that you're living deeply, sincerely, then books come to you. And as I, as I look at these essays by Will, very fine pieces of writing really, all of them related in some in some sense to what the reading life can do for us as writers, how it can help form a work of art or how it can help disturb a work of art. He's interested in difficulty as am I, in the texture of words and the layered accretions of the literary past, those who have come before us. One of these is Kafka, He's a big fan of Kafka. Kafka's short stories, Kafka's novella, Metamorphoses, which of course is for for which he's most well known. But the story that Will refers to most often, so it would seem, is the story called A Country Doctor. And it seems to feed back into my own life, I suppose it feeds back into so many of our lives because Kafka's one of those writers who leaves everything open. He's an existentialist writer. He's considering why we are here and what are we for. And the reading experience of this story, A Country Doctor, which is something like a nightmare rather than a ghost story. It begins very ordinarily A country doctor is asked to come out on a snowy, cold, wintry night to attend to a sick boy. The boy lives in a village ten miles away. The doctor sets out through the snow eventually. After he's managed to equip himself with a new horse and cart, he arrives at the family home. By the time the doctor arrives at the patient's house, they're already beginning to feel rather unsettled. There is the sick boy lying on the bed. His family are watching over him. The doctor begins to examine his body and there on the sick man's body is a wound which appears to grow larger and larger. And as the doctor gets closer and closer to the body, he sees that the wound is in fact crawling with worms. Makes you want to shriek rather. Suddenly we're in the realm of a gothic nightmare. I have found out your great wound. You are dying from this flower on your side. The family is happy. They see me doing something. The sister says that to the mother, the mother tells the father. The father tells a few guests who are coming in on tiptoe through the moonlight of the open door, balancing themselves with outstretched arms. Will you save me? Whispers the young man, sobbing. Will you save me? Quite blinded, by the life inside his wound. Quite blinded by the life inside his wound. Now as I read that, my experience is that it sends me away from myself, which I think is what great literature does. It sends me out, outwards into the wider universe. There's something extremely universal about this, extremely in the sense that it is extreme writing. It's highly symbolist. Kafka's very interested in the way in which the body, life, the life of the body, the way in which the body moves through time and space and how precarious the body is, how one false step might tip it off balance. And then this image of outstretched arms balancing themselves with outstretched arms that's the family members who are coming through the moonlight of the open door they unite in their in their form of sympathy and compassion So I'm looking at that image of outstretched arms and I'm connecting as I tend to I'm afraid to other to other texts to other novels to other moments and those... Arms are outstretched, imploring, in a state of grief. Those are found in Virginia Woolf's marvellous, magnificent novel, To the Lighthouse. Mr. Ramsay, with his arms outstretched one evening, he is grieving for his dead wife, Mrs. Ramsay. Mr. Ramsay, stumbling along a passage one dark morning, Stretched his arms out. But Mrs. Ramsay, having died rather suddenly the night before, his arms, though stretched out, remained empty. Mrs. Ramsay's death tucked away inside a devastating subordinate clause. Strange that human habit of tucking away the largest matter of life, which is to say, death, inside these little pockets of our mind. This extraordinary, imploring state of, will you come back? Will you save me? Will you return? Will you come back from the dead? Will you live again? Will you not be that dying flower at my side? And it's perhaps my favourite sentence in all of modernist literature: Mr. Ramsay with his arms outstretched one morning. Mr. Ramsay, stumbling along a passage one dark morning, stretched his arms out. But Mrs. Ramsay, having died rather suddenly the night before, his arms, though stretched out, remained empty. So it's dusk on the boat. I can see the flash of car lights through the mist. It's almost as though a pale grey sheet has descended, blocking my view. Occasionally I see a flick of colour as they pass through on the other side. People walking by on the riverbank. They look like ghosts or spectres passing through the branches. I keep using that word, coursing, coursing. C-O-U-R-S-I-N-G, coursing. Coursing, I describe it for the river, but I also think of blood coursing through our veins. So the river and my body and the body of the young, sick patient in Kafka's story are somehow related. The water flows, it courses its way, downstream the force of water pushing itself forward and so our blood moves forward through our veins feeding ourselves and when we experience a wound the body is ripped open torn open and the blood gushes out and spatters around and it's an interruption of the sealed surface of the body. And it's a warning to our mind. It's a danger sign. It's a symbol of pain and distress. It's an interruption of body consciousness. It's a red flag. And the water is coursing over those branches like large fingers. Sorry, all That's all right, Maeve. My little neighbour has come in to see me, Maeve, commonly known as Marvellous Maeve Magnus, and she is frequently found in my boat, particularly after school. I was just telling myself a ghost story <laughs> because I thought I saw some ghosts on the other side of the river. It was us. It was you? No. They're just foggy. It's just foggy. Yeah. You're a realist. And it's a She's just discovered this book under my pillow. What's it called? Will Self, why read? Yes, Will Self is the name of the writer. Why read? Why do we read? Why do you like reading? Well, it's fun and I like knowing about things. What characters have you been reading about? There's the silver swan story what happens in that story you wouldn't want to know (laughs) why wouldn't i want to know your stories always end badly (laughs) and you don't seem bothered by it what happens to the swan i don't want to tell you it's a really sad okay the silver swan dies because the fox ate it just like on ripham island we're always talking about foxes aren't we getting plucky we think that plucky the cat might die by a fox so you come into my boat quite often don't you when I'm writing or reading and you just quietly stand at the window and read I I find that really impressive actually because lots of adults can't even do that anymore and sometimes we go out to cafes don't we we have tea and cake like ladies and we take our books Um, it's fun to read somewhere else isn't it I wonder why why do we like going outside to read well I mean it's more fresh I know what you mean. Do you remember in the summer when we used to go to the little cafe on the bridge and sit on the benches and have ice cream? We used to read there, didn't we? Yeah. So I move around quite a lot when I read as well. I, I sometimes walk around the boat and read. You've probably seen me <laughs> doing that. Yeah, I have seen you doing that. Looking a bit crazy, as usual. But yeah, I like to move when I'm reading as well. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts. Bye. we live in our own world, a world that is too small for you to stoop and enter, even on your hands and knees, the adult subterfuge. Children's Song by R.S. Thomas And though you probe and pry with analytic eye and eavesdrop all our talk, with an amused look. You cannot find the centre where we dance, where we play, where life is still asleep under the closed flower, under the smooth shell of eggs in the cupped nest that mock the faded blue of your remoter heaven. still struggling somewhat with an aspect of this story by Franz Kafka, The Country Doctor. Something is still eluding me. I can't quite get to the bottom of it, so I'm going back again over some of the symbols in the story. I suppose there's really only one symbol. In particular that confuses me or perplexes me in some way, which is that of the wound. Let me see if I can find the wound. It turns somehow into something rather uncomfortably universal. The young man who is sick it's easy to discount him actually because he has very few words. I think at some point he says he would like to die and I think I've managed to avoid that fact in my several readings of this story. On his right side in the region of the hip a wound, a wound, the size of the palm of one's hand has opened up. Rose-colored in many different shadings, dark in the depths, brighter on the edges, delicately grained with uneven patches of blood, open to the light, open to the light, like a mine. Very surprising sentence, I love this about Kafka, we don't know where we're going, I have no idea that the wound, open to the light, with its blood red, patches was going to turn into a mine, M-I-N-E, as in a coal mine, or a gold mine, or a silver mine. Close up, a complication is apparent. Who can look at that without whistling softly? <laughs> I suppose the doctor, speaker, is becoming rather anxious and agitated, and the whistling is perhaps a way of calming his nerves as he stares down into the mine, this large, open, ripped space of yawning flesh, pink and red and rose-coloured. It's a symbolic landscape, and the symbols are too large, they're out to get me as they do in dreams when your unconscious starts to turn wild on you. Worms, as thick and long as my little finger, themselves rose. Worms rose, themselves as soft as my little finger. and spattered with blood rose-coloured and spattered with blood arms as thick and long as my little finger themselves rose-coloured and also spattered with blood spattered, spattered, spattered with blood are wriggling their white bodies are wriggling their white bodies their white, white is spattered with blood, spattered, 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 spattered with blood, with blood. <laughs> Poor young man. Poor young man, poor young man, there's no helping you, there's no country doctor. That Kafka story, it's got right under my flesh. Perhaps it's also because I've been associating with the medical profession so much the last year or so. I'm thinking ahead to my own phase of treatment, which hasn't really started. It's very difficult to get treated for. What is a progressing autoimmune disease? There's so much mystery So much uncertainty, where will it go next? And I'm wondering if I also have a set of worms wriggling around my nervous system. How to get them out, how to get them out? How does one pluck out a worm? And there's that Blake poem. How does it go, that poem? Let me find it, let me read it, I need to pluck out that worm. The Sick Rose by William Blake O Rose, thou art sick, The invisible worm that flies in the night, In the howling storm, Has found out thy bed of crimson joy. And his dark, secret love does thy life destroy. I remember the first time I heard that spoken out loud. I was startled by its dark, textured, deeply felt interiority. I don't think I'm going to be destroyed by those invisible worms, however. I think we'll find a way out. We can dig them out. We can dig them out. That poem, that William Blake poem, was the beginning of another piece of writing during lockdown. A fable I wrote. I wanted to explore the darkness of the world that we'd fallen into during the pandemic. From which I don't think we've yet emerged. And that Blake poem, with its sense of velvety, enfolded, tightly budded, darkness kept coming into my mind and I wondered what it would feel like to be inside a rosebud folded away with a worm eating out your heart. I kept returning to that image of sealed off darkness and consumption. It wouldn't leave me and when an image doesn't leave me I know I have to write it out. So I wrote out a fable about a character called Mrs. Finch, who's a foster mother, in charge of a set of girls, servants. Servant girls in a large house, set somewhere in the 19th century, set somewhere in England. But because it's a fable, it's partly out of time and out of place and out of history. And I wanted to try and generate a sense of everywhere and nowhere, and to retain that velvety darkness, as though I could hold the fable like the rosebud in my hand and carry it around as a signifier or a symbol of this enfolded and shrouded enclosed, tightly sealed off space that we all went into during, well, for almost two years from 2020 spring onwards. I kept clasping and clutching at that rosebud, hoping it would open up, start to flourish and thrive, hoping that somehow the lightness, the light would come back in. I think it's beginning to. I think it's beginning to. So perhaps the rose will heal itself, find the sunlight, find a way of Unfurling her petals, stretching out, find a way of speaking to the sunlight. We live in our own world, a world that is too small for you to stoop and enter, even on your hands and knees, the adult subterfuge. So, to put it more plainly, we will be taking a break, but we are not going away and we hope you'll keep listening. We're going to become a little less regular, less regular than my tea kettle. And we won't be making an episode every week. We'll still be making material, and we'll release it for you, our listeners, every few weeks or so, as and when we can. And we'll let you know when those episodes are forthcoming. And I will continue to make material inside this world of my own, which I hope is not too small for you to stoop and enter with me. I hope it's been large enough for you to share with me. And I hope very much you'll still keep listening. Some of you have told me you've been listening over and over to some of the episodes we've made, which gladdens my heart. To tell people to listen to the podcast. It's hard to find time to go under. I always think it's about going under the waves, under the waves. Poetry, music, sound, thought. To go underneath the surface of our consciousness. Do not mock the faded blue of this, my remoter heaven, children's song R.S. Thomas. Thank you for listening to A Reading Life, A Writing Life with writer and teacher Sally Bailey produced by Andrew Smith